5. A redoubt. Here, since the laws were so strict, the rewards for their breaking were naturally all the greater. Tempted by the magnitude of these latter, a great number of the officials made a lucrative profession of giving clandestine assistance to foreign commerce in direct contravention of the regulations laid down. It is rather curious to remark that at the very height of her colonial commerce, when the riches of South America were pouring at the greatest rate into her coffers, how little actual wealth was accumulated by the mother country. Indeed, a monumental proof of the inefficiency of her organization is that, although she bled the filial nations with an almost incredible enthusiasm, Spain remained in debt. The influx of gold from her colonies demoralized and ruined such industries as she had possessed, and such goods as she sent out to South America and elsewhere were now almost devoid of any proportion of her own manufactures. The merchandise which she sent to the New World she purchased from other countries, principally from Great Britain, and the English merchants saw to it that their profit was no small one. Thus Spain at this period, from a mercantile point of view, was very reluctantly serving as a general benefactor to Europe. All this, of course, was in spite of most extraordinary efforts to effect the contrary. As early as 1503 the Casa de Contratación de las Indias had been established in Spain. This institution was practically the governing body of the colonies. It possessed numerous commercial privileges, since it held the monopoly of the colonial trade. These privileges were continued until as late as 1790. The Casa de although in many respects a purely mercantile body, was endowed with special powers. So wide was its authority that to be associated with this body was wont to prove of enormous financial benefit. Thus, it was entitled to make its own laws, and it was specially enacted by royal decree that these were to be obeyed by all Spanish subjects as implicitly as any others of the nation. So far as the commercial world was concerned, the powers of the Casa de Contratación were sheerly autocratic. The institution, in fact, held the fortunes of all the colonials in its hand. It possessed, in the first place, the privilege of naming the price which the inhabitants of the New World should pay for the manufactured goods of the old. In addition to this, it lay within its domain to arrange the rates at which the produce sent from the colonies was to be sold in the Spanish markets. From this it will be evident that, commercially speaking, its powers were feudal. It was inevitable that frequent evils should have sprung from the inauguration of a system such as this. It became almost a religion to every Spanish official and trader to batten upon the unfortunate colonial, quite regardless of the fact that the pioneer settler was being strangled during the process, since the hapless dweller in South America was not allowed to bargain or haggle, and was forced to take whatever was graciously sent out to him at a rate condescendingly fixed. It frequently happened that this latter was five or ten times the legitimate price. The disadvantages endured by the humble overseas strugglers, however, did not end here, for their own produce received the coldest of financial greetings in Europe, and the prices realized from these frequently left the agriculturalists in despairing wonder as to whether it was worthwhile to continue with their various industries. Added to all these were further regulations which proved both irksome and costly to the men of the South. Twice a year the Casa de Contratación sent out a formidable fleet from Cadiz, escorted by men of war. It was this fleet which carried the articles of which the colonials were in urgent need. Now, the main settlements of the Spanish merchants and officials, as distinguished from the colonial, were in Panama and the North, and it was largely in order to benefit these privileged beings that the ridiculous regulations were brought into force which made the fleet of galleons touch at the Isthmus of Panama alone. 
by this means it was ensured that these goods should pass through the commercial headquarters, and leave a purely artificial profit to the Spaniards concerned, instead of being sent direct to the various ports with which the coasts of the continent were now provided. Illustration, Bardioloani de las Casas, the Apostle of the Indies, who took up the cause of the much-afflicted natives of South America, from the portrait in the Bibliothèque Nationale, Irish Guides. In these circumstances it was necessary for colonial merchants and traders from all parts of South America to journey to this far northern corner in order to carry out their negotiations, and to attend to the fresh transport of the wares. The hardships and the added cost brought about by regulations such as these may be imagined, and, as was only to be expected, a system such as this recoiled upon the heads of those who were responsible for its adoption. Occasionally circumstances arose in connection with these official fleets which bore with almost equal hardship upon Spaniard and colonial alike. Thus, when the English, Dutch, and French buccaneers took to harassing the South American coast in earnest, there were periods when the galleons of the Indies were kept within their harbor for a year and more. Then the Spaniards went perforce without the South American gold and the colonial's life was shorn of the few comforts which the wildly expensive imported articles had been wont to bring. The home authorities invariably appeared loath to take into account the possibility of human enterprise. It was not likely that the colonials would submit tamely to such tremendous deprivations as those intended by Spain. Foreign traders, moreover, notwithstanding the ban and actual danger under which they worked, were keenly alive to the situation and to the chances of effecting transactions in a continent where so handsome a profit was attached to all commerce. The result was the inception of smuggling on a scale which soon grew vast, and which ended in involving officials of almost all ranks. The governors of the various districts themselves were usually found perfectly willing to stand sponsors for all efforts of the kind, and, viewing the matter from the modern point of view, they are scarcely to be blamed for their complacent attitude. Here is a narration written in 1758 of the manner in which these transactions were carried on. The author, referring to it in an account of the European settlements in America, asserts that the state of affairs was one likely to prove extremely difficult to end, while it is so profitable to the British merchant, and while the Spanish officers from the highest to the lowest show so great a respect to presents properly made. The trade is carried on in this manner, the ship from Jamaica, having taken in Negroes and a proper assortment of goods there proceeds in time to the place of a harbor called the Groot within the Monkey Key, about four miles from Porto Bella, and a person who understands Spanish is directly sent ashore to give the merchants of the town notice of the arrival of the vessel. The same news is carried likewise with great speed to Panama, from whence the merchants set out disguised like peasants, with their silver in jars covered with meal to deceive the officers of the revenue. There is no trade more profitable than this, for their payments are made in ready money and the goods sell higher than they would at any other market. It is not on this coast alone, but everywhere upon the Spanish main, that this trade is carried on, nor is it by the English alone, but by the French from Hispaniola, and the Dutch from Curaçao, and even the Danes have some share in it. When the Spanish guard at Costa seize upon one of these vessels, they make no scruple of confiscating the cargo and of treating the crew in a manner little better than pirates. From all this, the shortcomings of the Spanish attempts at a protective system are sufficiently evident, in view of the hostile reception extended to them in all parts of the continent by the Spanish officials. It was only to be expected that foreigners, whenever they had the opportunity, should have rendered a wholehearted assistance to this business of smuggling. Moreover, since there was seldom peace between the Portuguese and the Spaniards, 
the former were only too glad to foster this trade, and thus defeat the object of the Spanish authorities, and incidentally line their own pockets. It was all the more difficult for the Spanish colonial government to maintain a consistent attitude when the introduction of the slaves, on whom the welfare of so many districts depended, was in the hands of foreigners. The state of affairs applied in a far lesser degree to Brazil, since that country was frequently able to obtain its human consignments in Portuguese vessels from its fellow colony of Portuguese West Africa. The Spaniards, on the other hand, were dependent upon other nations for the importation of their slaves, and they were from time to time accustomed to grant special licenses for this purpose. It was the reverse of likely that men of a temperament which urged them to raid the African shores in search of their human quarry, and to sail their black cargoes through the tropics, would abstain from making the fullest and most general use of an opportunity thus offered, as the Spanish officials invariably found was the case to their cost, and occasionally, as has been said, to their profit. The rivalry which characterized the relations between Spain and Portugal did not fail to be carried across the ocean, nor, when transferred to the colonies of either nation, did the mutual jealousies grow less bitter. Indeed, scarcely had the colonization of Brazil and of the Spanish territories commenced in earnest when the struggle between the two nationalities began. The area of the strife, fortunately, was confined. The enormous territories of tropical Brazil forbade anything in the nature of thorough exploration on the part of the few and slender bands of the pioneers. To say nothing of any attempt at expansion, it was in the south, where the narrow strip of Brazil projected itself downwards into the temperate latitudes, that the desire for aggrandizement raged. The Portuguese considered that the natural southern frontier of their great colony was the river plate. The Spaniards, having already possession of the northern bank, fiercely resented any such pretension, with the result that the Banda Oriental, by which name the Republic of Uruguay is still locally known, as well as the southern part of the province of Paraguay, became the scene of many battles. It may be said that the warfare between the two nations continued here, with but rare and short peaceful interludes. For centuries, the fortified town of Colonia, on the north bank of the Uruguay River, represented one of the chief bones of contention. Its possession constituted a strategic advantage of no small importance, and Spanish and Portuguese flags waved alternately over its shattered ramparts. The situation was accentuated by the characteristics of the inhabitants of the Portuguese city of Sao Paulo. These people, who lived in the town loftily placed upon its rock, had acquired for themselves, almost from the inception of the colony, a somewhat sinister and reckless reputation. The Portuguese and half-breeds here, their vigor and impaired by a temperate and bracing climate, would sally out to the west and to the south on slave-raiding expeditions, which they conducted with extraordinary ferocity and enterprise. Matters of boundaries and frontiers possessed no interest whatever for these Paulistas or Mamalucos, by which latter name the swashbuckling members of this community were better known. Illustration, Francisco Pizarro, the conqueror of Peru, from an engraving after the original portrait in the palace of the Viceroys at Lima. Irish guides. In the first instance, these forays were responsible for comparatively little friction, since the number of Indians near at hand was as plentiful as the neighboring white men were rare, when the nearer land became depopulated. However, it began to be necessary to extend the expeditions farther afield from Sao Paulo, and it was then that the Mamalucos came into contact with the growing numbers of the Spanish settlers, and with the Indians who now resided beneath the protection of the Spanish power. 
When the Jesuit missionaries arrived in northern Uruguay and in southern Paraguay their advent had the effect of embittering the feud between the frontiersmen, for the Jesuits, forming the Indians into companies of their own, withdrew them still farther from the onslaughts of the Paulistas. These latter determined at all costs to capture and to drive back their gangs of slaves, became more and more emboldened, and pushed forward to the south and west well into the Spanish territories, harrying the missionary settlements, and laying waste the countryside. For years the Guarani Indians, and armed, were helpless in the face of such attacks. Eventually, however, the influence of the Jesuits obtained permission from the court of Spain for these latter to be provided with firearms and after this the Indian regiments, trained and disciplined, offered such effective resistance to the Mamelucos that these were forced to cease their slave raids. In 1574, when the importation into Brazil of Negro slaves from West Africa had become a regular affair, the demand for slaves on the part of the Paulistas naturally became less active, even with this item of discord removed. Such intervals of peace as were patched up between the rival powers were of short duration. The fertile and temperate lands to the north of the river plate still remained in dispute, and although the Spaniards succeeded in retaining the possession of the bulk of these, there were times when the Portuguese penetrated as far as the waters of the great river, and in the end they managed to detach several of the most northerly districts from Spanish control, and in adding these to their own colonies, it was consistent with the curious irony of fate which seemed to direct the operations of the continent at that period, that while the Portuguese and Spaniards, actual lords of the soil, were at daggers drawn, the foreign seawolves, who had been gathering together, surveying with longing eyes the fold of riches so rigorously banned from them, were now making preparations for active aggression, but the history of the expeditions on the part of these formidable rovers is worthy of more than one chapter to itself. Chapter IX Foreign Raids on the Spanish Colonies Had the Laws of the Indies Been Differently Framed there is no doubt that the hardy sailors and reckless buccaneers who plundered these coasts would have had no existence, and that South America would have remained in provided with much of its grim romance, as it was, Spain, by her imperious policy of, hands off, had flung a challenge to every adventurer of the other nations throughout Europe, during the earliest periods of its colonization the reports from the New World were naturally somewhat nebulous in character and the Spanish authorities themselves saw to it that as little authentic news as possible should be allowed to filter beyond their own frontiers. This policy succeeded for a while in restraining the undesired enterprise of the rival peoples who were, so far as South America was concerned, groping in the dark. This phase was naturally only fleeting, that the first evidence of a desire on the part of the other nations to participate in the benefits accruing from South America, the Spanish court thundered forth threats and edicts. Thus on December 15, 1558, King Philip I.I. decreed that any foreign person who should traffic with Spanish America should be punished by death and confiscation of property. The edict was emphatic and stern, and contained a clause which deprived the royal audiences in Spanish America of any powers of dispensation in the execution of these penalties. If anyone shall disobey this law, whatever his state or condition, his life is forfeit, and his goods shall be divided in three parts of which one shall go to our royal treasure, one to the judge, and one to the informer, an island of course, notorious that the distance which separated the colonies from the motherland prevented the enforcing of many laws, whether good or bad, and that the Spanish-American local expression, the laws obeyed but not carried out, was common to nearly every district, at the same time, the mischief caused by decrees such as these may readily be imagined, 
A rich bribe to an informer was in itself an incentive to the stirring up of mischief where frequently none was intended. Such official bribes as these, however, were wont to be more than counteracted by the private inducements held out by many of the foreign adventurers and traders themselves, and after a while a great number of the officials found it very much to their profit not only to link at the wholesale commerce and smuggling that was being carried on, but even actively to promote it and to participate in its benefits. This method of keeping Spanish America as the close property of the crown was one which grew more and more difficult to preserve as time went on. In the first place the authorities had merely to cope with the foreign seamen and the fleets of adventurous traders who were determined, at all costs, to win their share of financial profit from these golden shores. After a while, with the growing population of the continent, a new situation asserted itself, and the influence of the colonists themselves had to be considered. Illustration, sections of a slave ship, typical of the small vessels employed in taking African slaves to South America. The hundreds of Negroes were packed between decks in the incredible fashion shown in the sectional views, in order that the full financial profit, as it was then understood, of the colonies should continue to be passed on to Spain. It was essential that the colonists should continue a negligible factor. The permanence of the state of affairs could only be effected in one way, it was necessary that no equipment such as would provide independence of thought or action should be allowed to be at their service. Books, of course were considered as one of the most mischievous potential engines of the kind. The Spaniards determined that none of the learning of their country should pass into the colonies. A certain number of volumes were permitted to cross the sea, it is true, but these were of the species that might be readily understood by a child of a few summers, and were ridiculously inadequate to the most ordinary intellect of adults in civilized regions. These themselves were subjected first of all to a close inspection on the part of the Inquisition in Spain. After this they had to pass the board of censors appointed by the Council of the Indies. Even here the precautions did not end, for on their arrival in the colony they were once again inspected as a safeguard, lest any secular matter or work of fiction should by any chance be overlooked and suffered to remain. In short, the policy by which the motherland endeavored to retain for her own benefit the riches of her colonies was undoubtedly one of the most benighted ever conceived by a European nation. It amounted to nothing less than a consistent checking and deadening of the intelligence of her sons overseas in order that their atrophied senses should fail to detect the true manner in which they were being shorn of their property and privileges. On the other hand, in conformity with the same theory, superstition was encouraged to an extraordinary degree. The royal seal, when it arrived from Spain, was greeted as though it were a symbol of deity, and the royal audience would chant an oath to obey it as implicitly as though it were a command of God. Every conceivable care was taken to foster this frame of mind throughout the colonies, and, since the intellectual occupations were religiously kept to themselves by the officials, it is not astonishing to find how far this method succeeded, and for how long it continued. Thus, even as late as 1809, when a portrait of King Ferdinand arrived at Coquimbo, the oil painting was received with the honors accorded to a symbol of deity. A special road was made for it from Coquimbo to La Serena the capital of the province. This task occupied many days. Volunteer citizens filled up the holes, made wooden culverts, and, in fact, acted as enthusiastic road repairers, in order that the portrait might suffer no discomfort. When it was judged that the highway was sufficiently repaired, the portrait set out upon its astonishing journey. It was surrounded by cushions and placed in a flower-filled carriage. The inhabitants kneeled as the picture passed, and when it had been placed in the cathedral, Salvos of artillery sounded, 
and the people shouted in delirious joy. The occasion, moreover, was marked by a fate which lasted three days. All this, however, is anticipating by some centuries the period under review. In the first instance, largely owing to the ignorance concerning the new world which prevailed in other parts of Europe which ignorance had been greatly fostered by Spain the Spaniards succeeded in retaining the undisputed possession of their portion of the continent for nearly three quarters of a century. Then came the first of the maritime swallows, which made many dismal summers for the court of Spain. In 1565 Drake voyaged to the Guianas on the Spanish main. He was followed by Hawkins, Raleigh, and a host of others, including the Dutch navigators. These hardy seamen, it must be said, had in the first instance proceeded to the continent with the idea of engaging in legitimate trade. In justice to the many desperate acts which the majority subsequently committed, it must be remembered that in the case of the early collisions, they only let loose their guns when they found themselves attacked by the Spanish authorities in the distant ports, or intercepted on the high seas by the guardian fleets of Spain. An experience or two of the kind sufficed to arouse the hot blood of the seamen, knowing now that they were braving the anger of the King of Spain. They determined to continue in this and wanted, even, if necessary, to singe his beard, as, indeed, was accomplished on one notable occasion. So they continued their voyages to these ostensibly closed coasts of South America and the general run of the territories known at the time as the West Indies. Frequently they found riches in the venture, sometimes disaster and death. The former proved an incentive to these breathless voyages, with which no dread of the latter fate could interfere. It would be as well to refer briefly to the careers in South America of a certain number of the most notable of these early adventurers. One of the first was Sir John Hawkins who set out in 1562 with three ships, the Solomon, the Swallow, and the Jonas, having touched at Tenerife. He then landed at Sierra Leone, where by the sword and other means, he obtained some 300 Negroes. He shaped his course to the west, and sailed with his cargo to the Spanish Indies. Notwithstanding the stern official prohibitions, Hawkins succeeded in trading with the residents at Port Isabella, in Hispaniola, and the tall sides of his vessels empty now of their dark human freight, soon held an important cargo of hides, ginger, sugar, and pearls. So successful was he, indeed, that he added two more ships to his flotilla and sent them to Spain. This daring procedure was intended as something in the light of a challenge and of a proof of his good faith in his right to barter in Spanish South America a right, he claimed, which was ratified by an old treaty between Henry VII and the Archduke Philip of Spain, the Spanish officials. Doubtless open mount at this somewhat subtle and startling confidence of Hawkins, promptly confiscated the vessels by way of definitely proving it ill-founded. Notwithstanding this, Hawkins was more than satisfied with the cargo brought home by his three original ships, and two years later he set out again, accompanied by the Earl of Pembroke and the Earl of Leicester, with a larger fleet than before. On this occasion he again visited Africa, collected a cargo of slaves, and endeavored to trade with the Spaniards more especially in Venezuela. This time the expedition found the authorities, warned by threatening prohibitions from Europe, in a less enterprising mood. Hawkins, persisting in the attempt, succeeded in bartering a certain number of slaves for hides, gold, silver, pearls, and other commodities. After a while the Spanish officers attempted to interfere and to put a stop altogether to the traffic, on which Hawkins, ever a friend to free trade, gathered his men together and marched down to the marketplace, incidentally firing off guns, which procedure destroyed the last scruples of the inhabitants, 
and an important exchange and barter now took place. Thus the triumphant Hawkins returned with a second valuable cargo to England. In 1567 Hawkins was accompanied on his next voyage by his young cousin, Francis Drake. The incidents of this voyage strongly resemble those of the previous ones. Negroes were collected in West Africa, and were disposed of in Spanish America, notwithstanding the protest, whether genuine or simulated, of the officials. The ending of the voyage, however, was destined to introduce a tragic note. On the way home the small English expedition fell in at the port San Juan de Aloa with a great Spanish fleet. In the first instance the mutual overtures were friendly, and hostages were exchanged on both sides. In the end, however, the English force was, without warning, attacked by the Spaniards as they lay at anchor. The majority of the men who had gone on shore were slain, and those who remained on the ships were assailed by overwhelming numbers. After a strenuous tussle with the Spaniards, Drake and the Judith followed some time afterwards by Hawkins in the Minion, got away. The condition of Hawkins's crew, and prepared as was the ship for the voyage, was pitiful. A lengthy spell of contrary winds served to accentuate the terrible dearth of provisions which prevailed. The following is a contemporary account of some of the incidents. The vessel had wandered about the ocean, ill hunger informed us to seek the lands for birds were thought very good meat. Rats, cats, mice and dogs, none escaped that might be gotten. Parrots and monkeys that we had in great prize were thought then very profitable if they served the tour in one dinner. The return home in this instance was truly a sorry one, for the survivors had left not only gold behind them, but the corpses of so many brave comrades. On the whole, the exploits of Hawkins were considerably overshadowed by those of his young relative, Sir Francis Drake, who had begun to adventure on his own account in 1570, and who haunted the Spanish Indies determined to avenge the treatment he and his comrades had received at San Juan de Alo. He ransacked number de Dios and Cartagena, explored the Gulf of Darien, made friends with the Indians who inhabited the place, and captured many Spanish merchantmen, repulsing the attacks of the Spanish men of war. Drake now crossed the Isthmus of Panama, and the first foreigner to accomplish the feat set eyes on the Pacific Ocean, in which he swore to cruise before he had finished his career. Here, moreover, Having failed to capture one royal treasure convoy, his good fortune led him to meet with a second, and the gold and silver borne by the laden mules became the property of himself and his men. Drake started out on his next voyage in 1577, and fulfilled his purpose of breasting the waters of the Pacific, for, after various adventures on the east coast of the continent, he sailed through the Straits of Magellan, and found himself in the ocean that, until then, had been traversed by Spanish vessels alone. His arrival came as a bolt from the blue to the Spaniards, who had not dreamed of the possibility of the invasion of the Pacific, the waters of which they had grown to consider as sacred to themselves. The alarm spread like wildfire along the whole length of that great coast. All the while Drake cruised up and down, capturing and destroying wherever he might. Indeed, of all the adventurers of this period, Drake was the one whose name conveyed the greatest terror to the Spanish colonists. This was evident in all parts of the continent. Thus the impetuosity of his attacks and incursions in the neighborhood of the Guianas and Venezuela was sufficient utterly to startle and dismay the unfortunate Spaniards. The taking of Caracas in 1595 showed him as not only an able leader, but as an extraordinarily gifted tactician. It was in the course of this attack, by the way, that the fine old Hidalgo, Alonso Andrea de Ledesma, mounted his horse, and, shield on arm, lance in rest, 
charged full tilt single-handed against the English force, who would have scared him had he permitted it, but his onslaught was too impetuous for that, all the invaders could do for the gallant old knight was to give him an honorable and reverent burial, after a while, Queen Elizabeth herself now lending open support to the adventurers, Drake's expeditions became more and more daring, and, until he died of fever at Porto Bella, his personality was one which gave sleepless nights from time to time to irresponsible persons on the coasts of the great continent. The name of Raleigh, poet, statesman, courtier, schemer, patriot, soldier, freebooter, discoverer, colonist, castle builder, historian, philosopher, chemist, prisoner, and visionary, island of course, from the romantic point of view, principally associated with El Dorado and his quest of the magic and imaginary land of gold. It was for this reason that Raleigh's dealings with the Spaniards in South America were more circumscribed than those of many of his colleagues, led to the belief, both by his own fanciful convictions and by the legends brought him by the Indians. He had conceived El Dorado as situated somewhere in the Guianas, and thus his operations were chiefly confined to this part of the world and to the neighborhood of the Orinoco River. Raleigh's quest, on paper, certainly sounds one of the most fascinating and entrancing of those undertaken in the great continent, that which the average reader hears of less are the fevers, noxious insects, heat, and the general climatic hardships and perils involved in one of the most tropical of all countries, to say nothing of the brushes with the Spaniards, for Raleigh, courtier, poet, and philosopher though he was, was no more gentle in his dealing with his enemies than any other freebooter of his peak.